This is episode one of Functional First Podcast, where we speak with leading experts in the field of functional health. I'm Katie Yamamoto, and today I'm speaking with Dr. Baram Jam about the relationship between medical imaging results and pain. Welcome, Baram. Hello. Would you like to introduce yourself? Sure. Um, my name is Baram Jam. I'm a physiotherapist for the last 25 years. And I went to the University of Toronto. That's when I graduated with my bachelor's. Then I went to Australia, did my master's a number of years later after I did all my manual therapy here in Canada because I decided there must be more. So Australia was absolutely a fantastic learning experience. I tell every physio, go to Australia if you get a chance. And then I came back here. I started teaching a lot of courses and doing more research. And I did my doctorate at Andrews University in Michigan. And here I am. Well, thank you for joining us here today. Can you share with us some more about your evolution as a clinician? I remember when I graduated from university, my ultimate goal was to learn to do manipulations, the cracking, because I remember asking my prof in my final year, when do we get to learn to manipulate or crack? There was this obsession I had with cracking. And then when I did my level courses, they were called EV series at the time, they said, no, after E1, V1, you can. After E2, you can't. You got to go to all the way to V4 in order to learn to do this. So I, I went through the entire program to eventually learn to do the manip and I learned it and I said, really? That's all there was? So I went to Australia and I did my master's in manipulation and still I wasn't impressed. I mean, it's not like I got any magical results. It was I, this obsession that I had with learning to specifically manip the spine and nothing really happened from clinical point of view or from a personal growth point of view. Then when I did my doctorate also, and it was on classification of low back pain, I did so much research and concluded that, yeah, Manip was no better than any other technique. In fact, when I got introduced to Brian Mulligan concepts when I was in Australia, that was far more revolutionary for me than any Manip that I had the obsession to learn. And I would say that's been my thing. And what was brilliant about Brian Mulligan and McKenzie that I had, I've done my McKenzie credentialing to, was they both promote patient independence and to promote patient to become self, have self-efficacy. And that's been my evolution. So I went from fixing people with a magical manip, now my ultimate goal is to teach people how to fix themselves. So it's actually a 180. Okay, so let's jump into today's topic about medical imaging. Do you believe that everyone should get medical imaging for an injury? And if not, when is it appropriate? Obviously, everyone shouldn't get imaging. You know, you get a plain old ankle sprain, you don't need imaging. There is certain criteria that they have developed. It's clinical prediction rules in the emergency department. Who needs imaging? For example, an ankle, if you're tender in certain bony spots, like your fifth metatarsal, then you should get an imaging to make sure you don't have a fracture. And the cervical, there's a cervical fracture rule that if you can't move your neck more than you know 40 degrees and if you've been in a severe trauma you should get imaging and seniors if they get spontaneous thoracic pain they should get imaging the emergency physicians know those rules and criteria but i still think that a physiotherapist we're much more conservative about giving imaging so for example if i see somebody with an ankle sprain and if i mob them and instantly they say oh, i feel better i can walk i know they don't need imaging but in an emergency department, a doctor will never do a mobilization technique to see if it makes the person feel better. Because if they question it, they automatically say imaging. And when they've done the studies, actually physiotherapists prescribe less imaging than physicians. So 
Uh, it's when we can put our hands on and do something to somebody's back and they say, you know what, that feels better. You automatically know, no, they don't need imaging. If a patient comes in to see you with medical imaging results, how do you incorporate that into their care? Well, in my practice, I don't. I've never incorporated medical imaging because I primarily see people with persistent pain, which is chronic pain. And my patients pretty much have all had imaging and the vast majority of their imaging results are completely, utterly irrelevant to their condition. So unless they've had a fracture, then I don't see them anyways. Or if they have a massive disc bulge that's compressing a nerve root, cauda sign with a foot drop or anything like that, I don't see those patient population either because hopefully they've been on a waiting list for surgery. People who have severe bone-on-bone hip OA, they probably get surgery and a hip replacement also. So my practice is people who, whose imaging is not that bad, yet they're in s- severe pain, and it doesn't explain it. So I'm happy that they've had imaging. At least they've ruled out red flags. So that's what I want to make sure, that red flags have been ruled out. Fractures, tumors, cord, spinal cord injuries, and stuff like that. And so that's, that's rare. So my practice, imaging doesn't help me other than gives me the assurance to say, okay, red flags ruled out, I can treat you just from a physio point of view now. So in general, do you find that medical imaging results correlate with pain? There's certain conditions where medical imaging does correlate with pain. When people have severe knee OA, like medial joint line OA, and they happen to have pain in their medial joint line, and they don't respond to physio and exercises or bracing, then it does. They may benefit from a knee replacement. There's other people with hip osteoarthritis. It's severe. It's pretty much bone on bone. I've tried my physio. We go for six weeks. And after several months of exercising, there's no difference. I say, you need a hip replacement. And they get it. And the surgery is extremely successful. There's certain imaging where they get it when the MRI shows that they have a disc bulge and it's actually compressing a nerve root. And they happen to have numbness in their little toe, loss of reflex, and they have a foot drop. Then I say, you know what, consider surgery. And so in those cases, where the radiological findings directly correlate with the symptoms, surgical outcomes are actually excellent, and I endorse it. But when it doesn't correlate, it just happens to be there, you know, you have back pain, but there's no true neurological signs, then the good news is surgeons nowadays don't operate on those people. They used to in the old days, but they don't anymore because they know the outcomes aren't good. Are there any good research studies to support this? There's actually quite a lot of good research studies right now. When people don't have neurological signs, true root myotoma, dermatoma loss, no surgery, whether it's neck or back. Because when they've done surgery on patients just for the purpose of pain, pain doesn't get better. They do surgery for the purpose of preventing progressive neurological loss. And doctors have become quite good at telling patients that. We're doing surgery not for pain when they do surgery for the spine. It's to prevent further nerve damage. And if you happen to get relief of your leg pain after surgery, that's a bonus. And so, yeah, there's growing evidence that you avoid surgery and you do it as a last resort. Like rotator cuff. They used to find everybody who had torn rotator cuffs, you should do surgery on them. And they don't anymore because the studies turned out that satisfaction rate post-acromioplasty, post-rotator cuff repair was quite low because people expected to be pain-free after surgery. And when they weren't, they were disappointed. So now they save the surgery only for people who have not responsive conservative care for a year. Then they think about doing it. For a specific patient, how do you determine if a structural abnormality on a scan is relevant and either a concern or cause of their pain? 
you have to correlate the symptoms. I've made a poster up called VOMIT, which stands for Victim of Medical Imaging Technology. This is when patients are told they have certain things wrong with them based on imaging, and they become a victim, meaning, oh, woe is me, I have this bad thing on my X-ray, MRI, CT scan, and it's irrelevant. And there's another acronym, it's called BARF, B-A-R-F, which stands for Brainless Application of Radiological Findings. Meaning just because you find it on MRI or an X-ray, you say, aha, that must be the cause of your pain. Again, BARF, Brainless Application of Radiological Findings. I know it has nothing to do with why I go with these vomit and BARF acronyms. It's purely coincidental. What are common mistakes that clinicians make when it comes to interpreting medical imaging results? The common mistake that is happening less and less because of a lot of research that's coming forward is that purely blaming arthritic changes in the neck, back, shoulder, knee, hip on their pain. And common mistakes is saying that, oh, you have arthritis in your knee, you have to live with it for the rest of your life. There's no cure for it unless you get a knee replacement. That's just wrong, it's just not accurate. Or if they see arthritis in your hip, they say, oh, you just have to take these anti-inflammatory pills until you need a hip replacement. It's, it's wrong, it's just not true because there's no shortage of people who have severe hip OA and have no pain. Or would they have pain in one hip and then they take x-rays of both hips, they show they have more arthritis in the opposite hip that has pain-free versus the side that has the mild to moderate hip arthritis. So there's repeated evidence from our patients and from research studies that most radiological findings are irrelevant. Can you give us some more examples of findings that may be irrelevant? Pretty much every single patient that I see with neck pain tells me that they have arthritis in their neck or they've been told they have degenerative changes. And then I tell them, do you know what percentage of the average adult population has degeneration on their, in their neck on their x-ray? And they say, no, how many? I say 98% of people have arthritic changes in their neck and have no pain. 2% of people are freaks of nature. They have no arthritis in their neck when they get an x-ray. And I said, you know what, at what age this degeneration starts at? For example, in low back pain studies that they've done, at age 20. So I say, are you over 20? They say, yes, then you have arthritis. Just accept that. It's the normal thing. It's not a cause of any alarm. But when the doctor has told them that your neck pain is from arthritis in your neck, it's really hard to change that because a doctor in a lab coat has told them that, so it must be true. A doctor in a white lab coat has told them that they have a disc bulge in their back. When in fact, when I tell them, do you know that 70% of all people with no back pain have disc bulges? And in fact, 30% of people in their 20s have disc bulges on their MRI. They don't know that. But when they're told by a person in a white lab coat, oh yes, your back pain is from your disc bulge, it obviously is true. And the worst thing that happens after that, they go on Dr. Google and they search disc bulges, back disc bulges, neck disc bulges, neck arthritis, and they get thousands of websites on how to cure it with this thing, with this thing, and how they're doomed, and they may need surgery, and it's just a horrible state we're in in the world of medicine right now with the excessive imaging and the doctors not telling their patients what is normal and what is truly abnormal. In your experience, has there been any change in how physicians order and use imaging in MSK medicine? I feel there has been, at least in Canada there has been, less in the United States, because in the United States, unfortunately, they have more litigation issues, so the doctors are more likely to say, you know what, we're going to get an MRI or a CT scan just in case. 
even though they know deep within their hearts they don't need it, it's, they're not going to find anything, but they do it just in case. And the doctors in Canada used to not recommend x-rays and MRIs because of worries about litigation so much, but it was more because patients demanded it. When I asked the doctors, family doctors, why do you recommend an x-ray for back pain? Because you know it's not going to come out as anything. We do it just to satisfy the patients. Because really, if you go to the doctor for your back pain and they don't give you anti-inflammatory pills and they don't recommend an x-ray, what else are they going to do for you? So they basically give an x-ray just to shut the patient up. But they're doing it less and less. Doctors are becoming more confident saying, no, there's no need for an MRI. And even at the University um, of California, at the Mayo Clinic, they have now strong regulations that avoiding giving MRIs on people with acute low back pain. And one is because it's not necessary and it's needlessly costly. But the second reason is the studies come out repeatedly that it's actually harmful to patients to get MRIs. Not because of any damage that an MRI does, because of the psychological impact that it has. Because the studies show people who get MRIs versus those who don't get it, a year later, they're worse off than the counterparts. But it doesn't matter if they got the MRI. If they, when they do the studies and don't tell patients or their doctors of the MRI results, they have better outcome compared to the ones who got the MRI, but the doctors, the family doctors and the patient were told about the MRI results. Do you think with the amount of medical imaging that there is an impact on the healthcare system? Yes, there is. And unfortunately, it's gotten worse and worse. Because the amazing thing is, in the last number of decades, say in the last 30 years, let's just talk about low back pain. The treatment of low back pain has increased exponentially, literally, meaning people rarely got treatment for the back pain. Now we have rehab clinics opened up in every block. Chiropractic use of low back pain has increased dramatically. Massage therapy use of low back pain has increased dramatically. Physiotherapy use of low back pain increased dramatically. Acupuncture has grown you know, dramatically. Naturopathic treatment of low back pain has increased. For a while, for a few decades, surgical treatment of low back pain had increased dramatically. Now it's on the downhill again, which is positive, at least in Canada. In certain countries like in the U.S. or uh, India and stuff where they still do surgery for financial purposes, it's actually on the rise. So the amazing thing is medical, medicinal use for low back pain has increased dramatically. Oxycontins and all kinds of opioid usage has increased. But the unbelievable fact is in the last three decades, disability rates for low back pain has actually increased also. You would think with all these interventions that we've had, it's treatment, with all the treatments that we do, low back pain disability would have decreased. It hasn't, not only has it stabilized, it has actually increased. And I blame over-medicalization of low back pain. And the ultimate culprit is, one of them is radiological findings, and it's even healthcare providers. We're over-medicalizing neck pain and back pain. We're trying to find the exact structure of fall and telling people, oh yeah, your neck hurts because of XYZ, this structure. Your back hurts because of XYZ. And thanks to the invention of Google and the internet, it's made things a lot worse. And therefore, it's been disastrous from a disability point of view. Because when people believe they have something wrong with them and the internet proves it and their healthcare providers give them the same explanation, the cause of your neck or back or shoulder pain is because of this X, Y, and Z, they do a lot worse. However, when a farmer in Bangladesh hurts their back, they get up, they go plow the field the next day. They don't have the option of getting radiological findings. Guess what? They recover a lot faster. So in your experience, what are patients' thoughts and attitudes towards imaging? Patients 
want to get imaging because they feel, they feel it'll finally give them an answer to what is wrong with them. And they're so upset when it takes you know, three months in order to get an MRI for their back. And meanwhile, I'm rolling my eyes, you don't need an MRI of your back. But they find that once they get an MRI, then they'll know well, exactly what to do with them. Well, in fact, I tell my patients, it makes no difference whether you get an MRI or not because you don't have nerve root compression findings. There's no damage to your nerves, which is wonderful. I tell them the only time I recommend you getting an MRI is if you need surgery. And obviously you don't need surgery. And people say, yeah, I wouldn't get surgery anyways. So why are you so adamant about getting an MRI? I don't tell them this. I, I say, I only recommend an MRI if I suspect somebody has a tumor, for example. But I don't use the tumor word on my patients because that would send them off in a panic. Oh, I need an MRI to see if I have cancer. I mean, that's extremely rare. And there's certain signs we look for if there's a risk of that. Put it this way. I've never had a patient in my 25 years with a tumor. So as a patient, if I've had a scan that shows abnormal findings, should I be worried? Well, it depends what the abnormal findings are. I mean, if, it's, if it shows that you have a spinal cord compression and you've lost bowel and bladder function, or you can't feel your feet and you can't walk because your walk, as we said, call it ataxia, then yes, it's emergency medical care that you need. But I've never seen that. People in emergency departments see it once in a while, which is true spinal cord injury, but it's so rare. So I'm gonna say, no, you shouldn't be worried. I mean, pain can be severe, but the majority of cases, it's not dangerous. There's an importance to, to distinguish between severe pain versus dangerous pain. So if it shows arthritis or regular disc bulges with no sign of compression of the nerve or spinal cord injury, then I suggest you move as much as possible, reduce your anxiety over it, and you'll eventually get better with the right amount of movement and exercise. Because when you worry, you won't move, whether it's your neck or your back. So for example, people are told in the shoulders they have rotator cuff tears, which you know, 40% of professional baseball pitchers have rotator cuff tears. They're still managed to throw 100 kilometers an hour balls and have long, many years of career. And, uh, but when they're told they have a tear, when they try to lift their arm up, I can't lift my arm up because I have a tear. My doctor told me I have a tear. And what that does is it actually sensitizes the area. So if you didn't know about the tear, there'd be a chance that you'd lift your arm up and say, ah, no worries, I feel it, but it's okay. Versus if you're told it's torn, then your brain says, oh, it's torn, what if I lift it and I cause more damage? So the area becomes more sensitized. Pain literally is enhanced and increased when people fear. What language do you use to describe imaging and assessment findings to your patients? Plain old English, and I work so hard at not giving a patient an excuse to catastrophize. The worst catastrophize means me saying anything that they could blow out of proportion. I used to tell people, oh yeah, you have a disc bulge in your back so innocently for the first 10 years of my career, meaning that I had done my McKenzie courses and we were told that when you bend forward, the disc comes back. When you have to go backwards, this comes forward. It was a jelly donut theory. And it was so convenient and so logical. And it turns out to be so untrue and false. And maybe I thought it was innocent for me to tell patients that jelly donut. So when you bend forward a lot, the jelly donut comes back. When you go backwards, the jelly donut goes forward. It was so innocent, but in hindsight, I realized how horrible it was of me to tell people that. Because what that did was told the patient, we're so fragile, like a jelly donut. So when I bend forward and they get their back pain when they're changing bed sheets, oh, my jelly donut just came out. Oh, it's out. My jelly's out. 
And, but I said it so innocently and I didn't mean anything harm by it, but it actually did harm. Or when patients are told they have osteophytes in their neck. I remember I had a patient. He, she would turn her neck only this much, okay? And I treated her for like two, three sessions and I couldn't get much range out of her. Then casually I talked to her, I built rapport with her. Why do you think you can't turn your neck more? And she said, came out bluntly and said it, because I had an x-ray and I know I have bone spurs in my neck. And I'm worried that if I turn my neck too much, those bone spurs will sever my spinal cord and I'll become a paraplegic and I don't want to be a burden in my family. Patients don't know that. When they're told they have bone spurs, you have no idea what they're thinking. They're thinking they have, there's jagged knives in their backs and necks. So the words we use are so important. So pretty much all I tell my patients you have, you've strained your neck, you've strained your back, you have muscle spasms. I don't use the word arthritis, I don't use the D word, meaning the disc word, none of that. So I say you're stiff, you're, you have weak muscles, that's the cause of your back pain. And if every patient say, what do you think specifically the structure is? I blatantly tell them, we don't know actually. And I like to quote one of the world gurus in the world of medicine and back pain. His name is Alf Nakamson. He is an orthopedic surgeon. He passed away a few years ago, but I regard him so much. He goes up on stage on one of these world congress and he says this, he says, I've been studying low back pain for the last 50 years of my life. And if anyone says they know where back pain comes from, they're full of so I really admire him. I say, if Dr. Alf Nakamson, the world-renowned orthopedic surgeon and one of the most researched in the world, says he doesn't know where back pain comes from, I don't think I can say where back pain comes from, or can I lie to my patients and pretend I know where it comes from? I don't, but I know I try to treat their impairment, their functional disability. So if the problem is they can't bend forward to put on their shoes, I give exercise to help them do that. If they have trouble walking, with their back pain, I help them achieve that. If they have trouble twisting, grabbing something, or golfing, or playing tennis, my goal is to improve function, not to treat structures at fault. Do you think that language influences pain? Amazingly, it does. So the words we say to our patients influences their pain because we have the chance to make them feel better before they leave the appointment or make them feel a lot worse and anxious. And I choose to make them feel better. So the language I use are non-catastrophic. So you've just sprained your back. You've just have stiff back. You just have weak muscles. And your shoulder pain, it's just because you haven't lifted it up in so long. Your muscles have tightened up. They've seized. So we need to move them again. So people won't catastrophize that. What are common mistakes that clinicians make with patient communication? Common mistakes that clinicians make is they believe that if patients are told exactly what structure is at fault, they're more likely to comply with exercises or more likely to respect them as a healthcare professional because they figured out exactly what structure is wrong with my back. And in my experience, because I see lots of patients and patients have to wait a few months to see me and I don't give them a specific diagnosis and they seem to be pretty still satisfied. I mean, I have a pretty good case load of patients who really like me and my diagnosis that I've given them, despite me not ever telling them exactly what is wrong. So the miscommunication is that the clinicians, physiotherapists, doctors feel like they have to tell patients exactly what is wrong with them. When patients, all they really want to know is that it's not serious. It's not a tumor. It's not a fracture. It's not a spinal cord injury. 
And you say, it's not think serious. That's all they want to know. Is it okay to use a pathoanatomical explanation for pain? And if so, when? It is. I, I have used uh, pathoanatomical diagnosis on my patients. I can't say never use them because that would be wrong. For example, if people come to me with an x-ray and it shows it's bone on bone and I try to mobilize their hip, I do it like three, four treatment sessions and I make no change and they're still in pain, I say, you know what? You seem to um, have arthritic changes in your hip. And I suggest that you see an orthopedic surgeon and get a consult. And inevitably, the patients I've told that to, they've gotten hip replacement and they've loved me for it. Because I can't lie to my patients that it's not their hip OA. Or when they've had, for example, get an MRI and it shows subscapularis tear. I say, you know what, you may need surgery, especially when they've had recurrent shoulder dislocations. I say that you need to repair that shoulder problem. When they have labrum tears, I say you need to have surgery. When they have meniscal tear, bucket handle meniscus, their knee is buckling and it's locking on them. I need to tell them, I think it's a meniscal cartilage tear and you need a surgical consult. I will never lie to my patients when I feel it's a true anatomical cause. But when I don't know, I don't lie to my patients and pretend that I do know. Can you share a memorable patient experience that's relevant to our discussion? Yeah, just two days ago, I saw a patient. This girl I've seen for, this was the fourth session that I've seen her. She's in her 30s and she's a young mother and she's had this pain down her leg and she's been severe pain and, um, but she's had an MRI, it's come out negative and I concluded she just had a sensitive nervous system because of all the stresses in her life. And I told her when I saw her, it's not serious and you are going to get, I wrote literally on a piece of paper that I expect for you to get 100% better. I wrote the word 100% better. I don't give a time frame, and I saw the tears come down her eyes. And I said, you felt very emotional when I said that. She goes, because nobody's told me that. And I said, of course you do, because you're a young, healthy person. This is just a temporary thing. Nobody with your health, you know, you're in good shape. And of course, the MRIs come out negative, lives with this type of pain. You won't. The chances are you are going to get better. And she just wanted to hear that, and nobody's ever told her that. And it was true. And again, I don't lie to my patients, because I do expect her to get 100% better, based on research study, based on the 20, my 25 years of experience. Now, I don't give a timeline, because I don't know if it'll be in three weeks, or it'll be in three months, or in another two years. I really don't know. But she will get better. And when people believe they will get better, of course they will get better faster. That's been shown in studies repeatedly again and again. When a physician tells a person with back pain, you are going to get better, their abs average absent days, sick days was uh, 14 days of absenteeism. When the doctors did not tell them those simple words, you will get better for acute low back pain, it took them 33 days to get better. It was almost more than double the times of work absenteeism. And the only difference was, difference was the doctor telling them that you will get better. So I make a point of telling my patients they will get better and writing it down on a piece of paper. If I know they're gonna get better, but in conditions that I don't know, like for chronic WAD, whiplash-associated disorders, I don't know, because those are different. When I know they have psychosocial issues, I will say they will get better functionally in life if they follow that protocol. I will say you will get stronger. You will increase your walking tolerance. And so whatever I think they will improve in, I will tell them that. Okay, can you tell us about your book? I wrote a book called The Pain Truth about five years ago now, and I'm happy to say it sold thousands of copies right now. 
and mostly in the hospitals that deal with chronic pain and in chronic pain centers. And the purpose of the book was one, is to reduce people's anxiety about their pain. And there's numerous research studies, and this is all the works of Lorman Mosley and David Butler, and a book that I strongly endorse, more than my book, it's called Explain Pain. And that book has been shown when people are given the information in that book, they have significantly reduction in uh, disability rates, faster recoveries, uh, reduction in use of medicines and opioids, and just by being educated. So the purpose of my book is a simpler version, which takes only roughly 20 minutes to read. And I've even turned it into a video now because I found that in the last five years, some people just don't want to read, even if it's for 20 minutes. So I've made three videos. It's on YouTube, available for free to everyone to view. And you just have to YouTube the pain truth and it'll come up. The first part is 10 minutes long, is to explain to people how hurt does not always mean harm. We may feel pain, but it doesn't necessarily mean something's injured with video clips that help to explain that. And the second part is try to explain people how our emotions can contribute to pain. And when patients learn that, they say, yeah, stress does increase my pain. My financial troubles, the divorce I'm going through, my social life, my, the fact that I'm alone or all that stuff contributes to their pain. You don't have to fix these problems. You just have to become aware of them and people get better. And the third part of the video is to give them its 10 solutions of reducing their emotional anxiety related to their pain. And in fact, the research studies have shown reduces people's pain. Everything from improving their sleep, improving their diet, reducing their anxiety about their stress, and walking more, exercising more, mindfulness meditation, getting involved in yoga. So everything that I recommend in these 10 recommendations is based on evidence. And I'm happy to say not one of the recommendations I make involves selling of any lotions or potions or anything, and none of them cost a dime. So it's all free, meaning that there's nothing you really need to help you in your chronic pain. And that's what I want to promote, because I don't want to sell anything to patients other than independence. And you've already touched on your vomit poster. Is there anything else you'd like people to know about that? Three years ago, I made a vomit poster, which stands for Victim of Medical Imaging Technology. And I'm happy to say after three years now, it's been translated into six languages because various doctors and physiotherapists in various countries have come to me and say, I wish if this was in my language. And I said, sure, translate it for me. And I've turned it into a poster and into Norwegian, into French, into Dutch, into um, German, Italian, I got it, and Russian right now I got it. So I'm extremely happy that it's been translated and all across the world. It's been put up in clinics. My goal is to have it up in every clinic around the world. And it's actually available on my website, aptoid.ca. There's a, underneath it, it's called Pain Education. And the posters are all up there in English and French. It's high quality JPEG that I want people to print out the PDF file if they wish, or send the PDF file to the printer themselves and have them print out the poster themselves. I made the posters not to make money off them. I've been selling the posters, thousands of them in the last number of years, but in fact, I promote people to print it yourself if you want multiple copies of it. I'm just happy to have the information passed down and all the information about radiological truths. And so, for example, this is the smaller version of the vomit poster. And um, I, I no longer call it vomit because I had a couple of complaints about it. Not that the word vomit was bad. They recommended not to use the word victim. And I agreed with them. Remember we said the words we use make a difference. And I didn't want to use the word victim so patients don't feel I've told them they've been victimized. So I just changed the poster to medical imaging, the untold truth. And this is the card version of it. 
And my goal is to have this up not only every rehab center in physiotherapy, but my ultimate goal is in every doctor's office, in every radiology office, when patients are waiting for their x-ray, that they are told what is normative findings. And how can people find out more about you? They can go on my website, apti.ca. It's meant for healthcare providers, mainly physiotherapists or physical therapists, that they can see my videos. I have a video library there. I have a clinical library there where I've summarized research studies. I've written a number of papers uh, that question the, some mainstream medical th treatments that we do. And that's on my website under clinical articles. For example, static stretching. I'm so much against static stretching before an activity, just for the sake of stretching because it prevents injury. It doesn't. Or to stretch before, uh, so you prevent post-exercise soreness. The studies show it doesn't. Or to improve your performance. It doesn't. So I'm for warming up. I'm a fan of strengthening, eccentric strengthening. Those are the things that prevent injuries. And the other things I have is I'm against the use of anti-inflammatories for acute soft tissue injuries. Don't use anti-inflammatories. I know this research study supports that people who use anti-inflammatories get better outcomes, but nobody talks about recurrence rates because the animal study shows collagen healing is worse when you take anti-inflammatories. And so, because I want people to, I don't, I want inflammation when you get an acute injury. We, we've evolved for millions of years to have inflammatory mechanisms in our body that perfectly allow the tissues and the collagens to heal at the right time, the right amount. But when we take NSAIDs to reduce pain and then we get back to activity as fast as we should have, that's a recipe for disaster. And so people wonder why chronic low back pain, low back pain recurrence rate is growing, I'm going to say one reason could be the overuse of medicine because it numbs the pain so we do stupid stuff that we shouldn't have done when we should have allowed our tissues to properly heal. And is there anything else you'd like to touch on? No. Nah. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for joining us for our first episode of Functional First Podcast. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please give us a rating on the iTunes store and stay tuned each month for a new episode.